Suppose this morning that I held in my hand a bottle. And I said to you, here's a substance which can destroy your brain cells and rot your liver if you take it internally. Here's a substance that can shorten your lifespan by as much as 12 years if you will take it regularly. Here's a substance which is responsible for the deaths of 25,000 of your fellow Americans each year in traffic accidents, which is nearly half of those killed in the whole Vietnam War era, or in other words, about one person every 23 minutes. Or I said to you, here in my hand is a substance that is related to one-half of the five-and-a-half million arrests made by law officers every year. Or I said to you, this substance addicts one out of every ten who try it, resulting in their chronic abuse of it. Or I said to you, I hold in my hand a substance which drains more than $45 billion every year from our economy through lost time, health and welfare costs, etc. What would I really be saying to you? I would be saying, here, have a beer. I would be saying to you, join me in a glass of wine. It is no wonder that the scripture says what it does in Proverbs chapter 20 and verse 1. When it says, wine is a mocker and beer a brawler. Whoever is led astray by them is not wise. We have been in the pursuit of wisdom in our study in the book of Proverbs these recent months. It says here that one who is led astray by beer and by wine is not wise. To be led astray means to be wrapped around it. You get the picture. The scriptures warn of the folly of drunkenness and point us, the wise, in the direction of abstinence. By abstinence, I mean refraining from its use altogether. Let me explore with you what Proverbs and some other texts have to say regarding the proposition that I just made to you. First of all, join me in a study of the picture of folly in the 23rd chapter of Proverbs, beginning in verse 29. The picture of folly, the picture of foolishness, is the drunk. We have all laughed at Foster Brooks and his imitation of a drunk man trying to make his way through life. And indeed, there are some humorous aspects to his act. But let me tell you, drunkenness is not funny. There is nothing humorous, truly, about a drunk. Whether in Skid Row or in the penthouse, whether in the ballpark or a beer bash, in a local bar or in a living room, the foolishness of being drunk is clear. Now verse 29 of this chapter begins with sort of a riddle. It says, who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has strife? Who has complaints? 
who has needless bruises, who has bloodshot eyes, a six-fold riddle. Who is it that can be described as having woe, sorrow, strife, complaints, needless bruises, and bloodshot eyes? That's the riddle. What's the answer? The next verse tells us. Those who linger over wine, who go to sample bowls of mixed wine or liquor, those are the ones who have woe and strife and sorrow and so on. The admonition in verses 31 and 32 says, Do not gaze at wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it goes down smoothly. In the end, it bites like a snake and poisons like a viper. He says, don't be fooled by its color. Don't be tempted by its sparkle, its texture. Why? Why this admonition? Well, he says it is because what you have in your hand, what you're looking at, is poison. It is like being bitten by a venomous snake. It destroys your mind, your body, and your morals. It corrupts your soul, yourself, and all of society. It is a poison. Indeed, only 0.5% of it in your blood will kill you. It is poisonous. Thus the admonition. And then he gives to us a description of the one who has imbibed. In verse 33 he says, Your eyes will see strange things. Eyes cannot see clearly. They are bleary and bloodshot. Your mind imagines confusing things. The mind cannot think straight when it's influenced by alcohol. You will be like one sleeping on the high seas, lying on top of the rigging. I tell you, it's one thing to be in the bottom of a boat when the seas are rough. That's bad enough. But how would you like to be on top of the mast? Now just picture yourself up there in a raging storm, the dizziness, the lack of equilibrium that you would have, and you have something of what it's like to be drunk. He says, They hit me, you will say, but I'm not hurt. They beat me, but I don't feel it. True. There is an anesthetic quality about alcohol for a while. It helps to dull the pain not only of the body, but of the soul. But then when it wears off, it only increases the pain. And people say, what have I done? Why do I do this? What has happened to me? And the pain is only more intense and so often it leads them to what is said next. When will I wake up so I can find another drink? Alcohol, my friend, is addictive to many people. It is a destructive habit. One out of every three who begin as social drinkers become problem abusers. 
of alcohol. Proverbs is absolutely right, and it further says in verses 20 and 21, that the one who drinks puts his whole future at risk. Do not join those who drink too much wine or gorge themselves on meat, for drunkards and gluttons become poor, and drowsiness clothes them in rags. You're listening to someone who preached for half a year at the Pacific Garden Mission every Sunday morning when I was a senior as a student in Chicago. You're listening to someone who spent a full year working in two different missions on Skid Row in Chicago, also called Madison Avenue. When you watch the Super Bowl next Sunday after church, And you see all of those beer commercials and those young, lithe, tanned, muscular bodies playing on the beach and then going to their beer, you understand one thing clearly in your mind. That is a lie. I'll tell you where alcohol leads you. Come with me to Skid Row in Chicago and see the men who are urinating on the street because they don't have any sense about them anymore who are vomiting on the sidewalk because they are so sick, who are drinking aftershave because they can't afford the cheapest wine they sell in those stores. And I'll tell you the end result of alcohol. It is a curse to the individual. It is a curse to families. It is a curse to society. You want to see a picture of a fool? Then you look at the Word of God, how it pictures a drunk, and you see a fool. Somebody says, isn't alcoholism a disease? It is socially correct to say that it is. But I want you to know that at its heart, It has been redefined as a social disease because of a society that doesn't want to pass any moral implications on activities. It doesn't want to pass judgment on people morally, and so it says, well, therefore, it must be a disease. In fact, it does have some disease-like qualities to it. And studies certainly tell us that alcohol destroys the body like disease. Furthermore, alcohol addiction can sometimes be linked to body chemical problems. But recognizing all of that, I want you to know that at its heart, alcoholism is not a disease. At its heart of hearts, it is a moral issue. It is an expression of sin in the heart of the person. And God says it is. God doesn't say anybody is going to be kept out of heaven because of cancer or heart disease or any other illness. But God makes it clear that drunkenness keeps a man out of heaven. It says that the one whose life is characterized by drunkenness or alcohol or alcoholism will not inherit the kingdom of God. In 
1 Corinthians 6, it says, Drunkards will not be in the kingdom of God. God says that drunkenness is not a disease, it is a sin. And I'll tell you something, until that issue is squarely faced, there is no meaningful recovery. Because it requires repentance and forgiveness. We hear this phrase, once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. That is not true. Now, I'm making some of you mad this morning, and I'm sorry about that. But I'm going to tell you the truth. It is not true, once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. Is it true, once an adulterer, always an adulterer? Is it true, once a swindler, always a swindler? Nor is it true, once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. Now, I want to go on to say that a person who is a Christian can still struggle with temptation to drink. Let's make that clear. But it doesn't mean he's an alcoholic. One who has trusted Jesus Christ as his Savior is not an alcoholic. He is a saint in the eyes of God. That is his identity. And if he struggles with temptation to alcohol, then that is his area of battle and temptation. But let's get rid of the idea that one's basic identity is that he's an alcoholic. If a person is a Christian, he is a saint in the eyes of God. That's who he is. And because he is a saint in the eyes of God, he can know victory over alcohol. If all he is is an alcoholic, then he is consigned to a life of alcoholism. But because a person trusts Jesus Christ as Savior, his past can be forgiven and cleansed and washed away. He is filled with the Holy Spirit and can know victory over the temptation of alcohol that in fact may be with him the rest of his life. The Word of God gives us some principles to follow in dealing with alcohol. You may think what I've said up to this point leads me to a Billy Sunday conclusion. Billy Sunday, for some of you who wouldn't know, was an evangelist back in the teens, the 20s, and the 30s. A former baseball player for the Chicago White Sox who went on to be a famous evangelist and mightily used of God, also led the prohibition movement in this country. <clears throat> And so you're going to assume that I'm going to say the Bible declares that any drinking is sin. I can't find that in the Bible. Believe me, I wish I could. But I cannot find a place in the Bible where it says if you drink a beer, you sin. Different than drunkenness. To be honest with Scripture, we must say that while drunkenness is condemned, abstinence is not commanded. In fact, wine is used in a positive sense in a number of places in the Bible, including in the book of Proverbs. Look back in chapter 9 for a moment. Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn out 
its seven pillars. She has prepared her meat and mixed her wine. She has also set her table. Wine is used here in a positive sense. In verse 5, wisdom says, Come and eat my food and drink the wine I have mixed. And Psalm 104 says, God has given wine to make the heart of man glad. You well know that Jesus miraculously made wine out of what was water at a wedding feast in Cana. You will have to go a long way to be able to prove that that was non-alcoholic wine. Even if it may have been quite diluted like the typical wine in that day, unlike the highly alcoholic wines that can be bought today, wine was pretty diluted in the New Testament but you'll have to go a long way to prove that it was non-alcoholic. And as you probably know, Paul suggested to Timothy that some wine might help his stomach in a medicinal way. So now, while I made some of you mad at the first part of the message, I'm making others of you mad now. I believe that whether one should drink is one of those questions that falls into the disputable things category. In other words, there is not a definite and clear demand in the Word of God about your practice as to what you ought to do. Certainly, drunkenness is sin. But now I'm talking about a moderate drinking Let me give to you from the New Testament five principles to guide us in making decisions about matters like this where the Scripture is not specific. Now hang in there with me. Don't walk out yet. I want you to turn to Romans chapter 14 where we have only time to glance through the chapter. And notice first of all this principle, the principle of accountability. The issue was not the drinking of wine here, but it was another issue just as controversial, just as hot and emotional among the Christians of that day. It was whether to eat meat that had been offered to idols. You say, I could care less about that. Well, wine wasn't an issue to them in that day. But we have laid out for us principles that apply to all of these kinds of issues where the Scripture isn't specific and clear with yes or no. The first principle is the principle of accountability. All of us must be reminded we don't give account to others, but we must give account to Jesus Christ at the judgment seat. Verse 12 of Romans 14. Each of us will give an account of himself to God. So, however we answer these kinds of questions, we must first of all recognize this someday... I must stand before Jesus Christ and be able to explain to him why I made the decision I did. There is an accounting coming. Not to play on words, but that's sobering. The next principle is found in verses 13 through 23. It's the principle of responsibility. And here he says that there are other believers around us who have weaker consciences who have not matured in their understanding of the things of God 
He doesn't commend the weaker brothers. He simply recognizes their existence. They need to grow up. They need to mature. But Paul says, in the meantime, until they get to that point of maturity, you who are strong must remember they're present with you, and you are responsible for them. Do not cause them to stumble in their immaturity. And whatever decisions you make, don't lay before others an example that will cause them to stumble and sin against their own conscience and against Christ. Principle number three, the principle of profitability. We see this in chapter 15, verse 2. Each of us should please his neighbor for his good to build him up. That's the profit in it. But I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6 where we see this stated again. Verse 12, Paul is speaking here. Actually, he's quoting some things that apparently had been said to him by these Corinthians who were going too far with their Christian liberty. And the statement that had been given to him was, the Corinthians are saying everything's permissible. So Paul is writing back to them now, and with a bit of tongue-in-cheek, with some irony here, he says, everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. In other words, you may have liberty in your own conscience before God to partake of this, but is there truly benefit in it? Is there profit in it? Will it build up others? His point in the eighth chapter, which we're not going to look at this morning, is that we must be willing to lay aside our rights, our freedoms for the sake of others, that they may be built up. So he says it's permissible, but does it profit? Principle number four, the principle of controllability. Verse 12 goes on to say, Everything is permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. He says here that we must not allow ourselves to become addicted to any substance. We must not allow something to become our master besides Jesus Christ. He says it may be permissible, but will enslave you. The principle of controllability. And finally, in chapter 10, verse 31, the principle of honor ability. Am I able to honor Jesus Christ in what I'm doing? Chapter 10, verse 31 says, Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of of God. Can I envision Jesus Christ joining with me in this activity? If the answer is yes, then it passes this test. The principle of honorability. Now whatever the issue may be, the disputed issue, in this case the moderate drinking of alcohol, we must apply these principles before we make our decision. We're foolish if we don't. We're unbiblical if we don't. The Bible says that these are principles that need to be applied to our lives. When we do this regarding drinking, the principles point us, I think, in the direction of abstinence. 
Why be involved with something that is nearly always destructive and is a major problem in our society? Alcohol adds nothing to a person physically. Well, that isn't entirely true. It'll put on pounds. It'll put on a paunch. It adds nothing to a person emotionally. It adds nothing to a person mentally or socially and certainly spiritually. I believe with all of my heart that it is a matter of testimony in our culture to refrain from alcohol and chemical substance abuse. The first mention of drinking alcohol in the Bible puts it in the context of wickedness. Did you know that? And guess who it involves? Some of you are going to be shocked to know where it's mentioned the first time in the Bible. It's always significant when something is mentioned the first time. The first person who is mentioned in the Bible as raising grapes for wine and who by that wine became drunk was Noah. And because of his becoming drunk, there was a crisis in his family that led to judgment and subsequent heartache. Alcohol is the father of many kinds of heartaches and losses. Abstinence is exalted in the Bible. Chapter 31 of Proverbs, the fourth verse, the mother of Lemuel said to him, Kings must not drink wine. There the point is that those who are in leadership are exhorted not to imbibe in it at all. I am pleased to understand that our new president enjoys iced tea. I wish he would enjoy some other things that I enjoy. I'm not going to go into that just now, though sorely tempted. But so often decisions in Washington are made by people whose minds are clouded with alcohol. And all you have to do is look back over the last few months of testimony of sexual abuse and corruption of power in Washington, and you see that alcohol and alcoholism is at the heart of it. Leaders ought never to drink. There is a higher standard for leaders, and I want you to know that those who are in leadership in Grace Church are expected to totally abstain. Grace Church Roseville exalts abstinence as the Christian response to the destructive social evil of alcohol. I liked very much the statement of Dr. Leith Anderson at Wooddale Church a few years ago when he said the call for total abstinence is not based on a direct command from God. It is based on a combination of sanctified common sense and general biblical teaching. There are far greater benefits to abstinence than to drinking and there are far greater dangers to drinking than to abstinence. And he's absolutely right. 
the bottom of your outline today, it says, these principles point me in the direction of. And then it's blank. Because every one of you has to fill that in. In light of the principles we've looked at this morning from the Word of God. But I want you to know from my perspective as your pastor that my answer to that is these principles lead me in the direction of abstinence. I believe with all of my heart that that is the only sociably responsible and spiritually obedient response that can be given. You say, well, that's your opinion, and, and I grant you it is. And if God leads you in another direction, you don't give account to me for that. I've already said, all of us give account to Jesus Christ. But may God fill your heart with wisdom, because every one of us faces this issue. Every one of us. You don't have to be a salesman to have to face the issue of what to do with alcohol. In my life, Lord, be glorified. Be glorified. That needs to be the heart prayer of every one of us. May it be so right now. Let's pray. Sing that with me, will you? In my life, Lord, be glorified. Be glorified. In my life, Lord, be glorified today. Would you stand with me, please? Our heads are bowed. My friend, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior today, I want to urge you to respond to him who can save you, forgive you, and cleanse you from the abuse of alcohol or other chemicals or from any other sin in your life. He died for you and rose again from the dead that he might save you, cleanse you, sanctify you, and fill your life with himself. May you find life in him today. And having found that life, may you live in the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Be not drunk with wine, but be empowered by the Holy Spirit. Let's sing it again. In my life, Lord, be glorified, be glorified. In my life, Lord, be Whatsoever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Amen.